Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. This show was heard on WBCQ of the Planet every Monday and Thursday evenings, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also get it on Podomatic. That's our flagship platform. Also, uh, iHeart, Spotify, and a bunch of others. The show is brought to you by Camp Constitution, <clears throat> which, among other things, runs a week-long family camp. A weekend retreat, ladies retreat, and we just finished our weekend retreat in the beautiful Camp Sentinel in Tuftonboro, New Hampshire, just uh, yesterday. And it's what's nice about Tuftonboro, it's just two towns away. And we were pleased to have uh, not only Reverend Stevie Kraft, but uh, Karen Testament. She was a elected official in New Hampshire. She was a city councilor and uh, ran for governor on a few uh, times. She did a wonderful presentation on the New Hampshire Constitution. Now, what's interesting is that the very first constitutional convention in the world took place here in New Hampshire, in Durham, back in the 1700s, when uh, actually 1776, after the United States declared its independence, they had a uh, sort of a temporary constitution, and then they um, created one a few years later, which is still in existence. I think it was 1784 was the date of the current New Hampshire constitution. And uh, we, again, uh, Catherine White, our constitutional expert, was on hand and gave a couple of classes. So it was a, a great time, and we, we, we know it was a blessing for many people, and we just love that venue, Camp Sentinel. Uh, I encourage viewers, I'm sure, I mean listeners, who might be looking for a place to host an event. Uh, it's a year-round facility. And again, Camp Sentinel, I think, .org, you'll be able to find the place and um, inquire about booking it. Uh, I, I've had a, a whirlwind uh, tour uh, starting on, I think, September, I think it was the 14th, that was a Thursday, drove down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, actually Mannheim, which is near Lancaster, where I participated in the um, the Mid-Atlantic Reformation Society's annual event, The Future of Christendom. And it was really an honor to be one of the presenters among some really brilliant people uh, and also had an information table. And one of the folks that was presenting along with me, it was Charles Van Veek. And um, you know that uh, we had Charles on on the show here not too long ago. We also uh, had a uh, six speaking engagements for Charles. So we took uh, took Charles and his son. Uh, now, Charles was flying in from South Africa, Cape Town to D.C. And then he got a ride up to Pennsylvania and we took him to Massachusetts on Sunday morning. That was Constitution Day on the 17th. And we had an event in Newton, Massachusetts. And that event, the um, that was up on our YouTube channel. It was the uh, Norfolk County Republicans uh, Second Amendment rally and Constitution Day celebration. And I shared the stage with... Uh, Toby Leary of Cape Cod Gunworks. First time meeting Toby. I've heard him on the radio. Really good guy and knows the stuff. To, uh, he's just very knowledgeable about what you, what you expect him to be. If you own a gun shop, you better be knowledgeable about guns. But he really has a good handle on on not only the guns, but on the the, the threats against uh, not just the Second Amendment, but the Constitution. Uh, Jim Wallace was also one of the presenters of Goal. Lynn Roberts of Second Amendment Sisters. 
and several others. And that's up on our YouTube channel. So if uh, you'd like to see what uh, Charles was not um, not on the program, only because the program was uh, was set several months prior to uh charles uh come i didn't i didn't realize that we'd have Charles with us i didn't quite know how it would work out so hey but we did introduce charles and he made some really good contacts there uh one guy or a shotgun with riding shotgun with charlie charlie cook he's got a youtube channel and he what he does is simply rides with people and discusses issues uh dealing with the right to keep bare arms so he took charles for a ride around lexington massachusetts that uh, monday so Monday, uh, oh, that would be the 18th. We had two programs in uh, Lexington and in Bedford, Massachusetts. Then up to New Hampshire, where we had two uh, on the same day. Uh, uh, we had 11 o'clock presentation in Loudoun at the First Congregational Church, as well as the Community Church of Alton. And then up to Littleton, Maine, where we spoke at the uh, Littleton Baptist Church, I think Union Baptist Church. And then the next morning, we were in Lee, Maine, where we spoke at a, it was a snowmobile club. We had to find a venue on very short notice because uh, initially he was going to speak in Caribou, but we had he'd had to get a flight out of Bangor and it would have been possible to make the time. And then I drove home uh, to Alton, washed some clothes and packed some clothes. And my wife and I went out to Michigan. We uh, uh, got a plane to, from Boston to Detroit, and then drove up to Mackinac City, where we had a wonderful event at Mackinac, Mackinac Island, I think it's pronounced Mackinac. Uh, we took the ferry over. There was a, a two-day event. Actually, yeah, I, guess it was, I guess it was a three-day event, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We shared the podium with some very interesting people, Jim Caviezel, Kerry Lake, uh, to name a few, Denise D'Souza, Alan Keyes, and then we got back Monday. So, uh, and then um, just a few days, and then we had the weekend camp. So now I've got a little bit of breathing space to catch up with some videos I got to make and uh, getting ready for my son's uh, wedding as well. But much has happened, uh, as always, in the news. Many things are going on around the country. And, uh, but I want to share something. Uh, <clears throat> there's a Facebook page in uh, Alton, New Hampshire. It's called Alton Uncensored. And somebody made a posting uh, about climate change, uh, exposing it for the fraud that it is. And I made reference to it as being a hoax. Well, then um, one of our more liberal members of this uh, went on and said that if anyone who thinks, if I think climate change is a hoax, then I'm a blankety blank fool. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, now, why would somebody say that? Why would, instead of saying, hey, this is why you're wrong. Here's the science that says such and such, that from this time period, from this time period, the temperatures in Mass New England or the world have gone up 10 degrees, 5 degrees, whatever the case is. They don't do that. They just throw ad hominem attacks. You're a fool. If you believe that, then you're a fool. If you believe it's a hoax. So what I did uh, I said, uh, instead of uh, getting involved in name calling, and I think it's important when you, whether you're debating in person or writing, a de uh, you know, writing um, articles or letters or posting on social media, that you shouldn't get into the name calling business because it sort of diminishes. So we should always take the moral high ground. First off, it's God honoring. Second off, well, we don't expect to win a lot of these people over. 
uh, we want to again be uh, be take the moral high ground. But there are a lot of people out there that really don't understand, or they're open minded. Those are the people we want to reach out to. So sometimes you're antagonists. You're not going to win that person over. And I do, I did this years ago when I would debate people in the post office uh, as we were walking and leaving. You had we we had some interesting conversations, and I look at these as debates. Not planned debates are scheduled, but uh, somebody will come up and, and, and contest what you had to say, and you just uh, refute them with information and uh, let them call you names. When they start calling you names, that's almost like you, they say that the last refuge of a scoundrel is patriotism. I don't. I think Samuel Johnson said that. What's the first? I say, what's the first refuge of a scoundrel? Treason, being treasonous, but usually the last refuge of a person losing a debate is name calling. And then he just, or he gets some one line or says, oh, what did you get? What did you buy that that shirt from the Morgan Memorial? Ha ha ha. And everyone laughs and they think, oh, he really got you. Well, no, he didn't. He didn't win that debate. He made a one line that had nothing to do with the issue. And then the people started laughing and therefore you think you've lost the debate. It doesn't work that way. Don't, don't let anyone try to do that. <clears throat> they just say that in logic, say that's that's a logical fallacy. And let's get back to the subject. So. Uh, and these people like this give me ideas for uh, writing articles. Because you're always looking, I write a monthly article for a few papers, and I do online and put it on the blog. So uh, so this guy says I'm a, said I was a blankety-blank fool. And what I did is I went back to uh, our YouTube channel, and I found the interview I did with John Coleman, who was the founder of the Weather Channel. He wasn't just a weatherman, he was a meteorologist. So he studied, he wasn't just someone, I should say, who just reads the, the weather report. He was a scientist in that regard. And I, I asked him, and I, this was an interview I did with him, and he has since passed away. I think it was 2010. It was at the uh, New York City at the Climate Change Conference hosted by um, the Heartland Institute, which is based in Chicago. And they, this particular group had, invented, had invited left-wing scientists, climate change, pro-climate change, or global warming, what it was called then. None of them showed up. They don't show up. They say, hey, we'll treat you to a, put you in a nice hotel. And I even invited uh, uh, my city councilor. I said, I will cover your train fare or your airfare and two nights in a hotel, all the meals, bring your wife, uh, Come and listen and learn and ask questions and debate. No, they don't come. They don't show up. So they just want to call us fools and call us names and such. So, um, but if I guess, I guess if I was what we call a low information person or somebody who relies on the daily newspaper, whether it's the hard copy, the online version, most daily newspapers in major cities are very left wing. There's a couple of minor exceptions where the paper is leftist, but not hardcore left like the union leader in, in, in New Hampshire, the Boston Herald, which is left. It used to be conservative, but it's more left now. But at least it's not uh, the Boston Globe. It's not hardcore left, anti-American left. Um, but they'll still have the same narrative. So I, because people are getting information from the wrong sources, and they may not be aware of all of the other sources out there, I mean, there's a uh, there's an email of I think a website of thirty thousand scientists from around the United States, just the United States, not around the world, and all of these people are what they call hard scientists. They're not political scientists, you know. They're not. Uh, they're people that deal with hard science, and 
and when it comes to climate, the climate issue, there's dozens of disciplines. There's not no such thing as oh, I'm a client a climate scientist. Really soon, uh, one of his uh, he mentioned this in numerous presentations. He mentioned all of the disciplines. It's just too many to mention. <laughs> Statisticians included. Uh, when it comes to climate, uh, so it's not just I'm a client science, science scientist. There's all kinds of different studies and disciplines within that that genre. You see, there's so many that's so hard to say that I'm a climate scientist. Well, you know, Al Gore is not. We know John Kerry isn't. We know that most of the Democrats in Congress are not, but they all screaming climate change coming to an up. Joe Biden isn't, but he claims that there's the biggest threat next to white supremacy is climate change. And every time we see a flood or a hot day, uh, you know, we have a beautiful weather in October. It's a little bit warmer than it normally is. This is a good thing. But you see, with the climate leftist, it's a bad thing. You have to say, oh, my goodness, it's going to be warm today. This is not good. The world's coming to an end. No, maybe it's a nice thing. And the world isn't coming to an end. In fact, the world looks pretty nice right here. So what I'm going to do in my article, I'm going to list numerous resources where people can find rationable issue, dealings with this issue. I'm going to mention the Heartland Institute. I know they deal with a lot of issues, free market issues, but they have a, they because because this climate nonsense, this hoax does influence the, the marketplace terribly. Imagine all the billions of dollars that have been spending in resources, just wasting money to address a non-issue. It's just, and, and one of the interesting things is if you ask these climate scientists who know so much about the world coming to an end, ask them, uh, what is the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Most of them will say between five and 10%. They don't even know that it's 0.04%. It's 0.04%. So if you raise the amount of carbon dioxide, a half of that, it's still a minuscule amount. Water vapor, I think, is like 85% of the uh, the gases in the atmosphere. Um, so for eight for 0.04%, and they believe that the temperatures just go by uh, two or three degrees higher than normal, then the world's coming to an end. And they, by the way, they've been, they've been predicting the world coming to an end for a long time. Um, and so what I'm going to do in the article is I'm going to give my own experiences, and then I'm going to list some like the Heartland Institute. Um, uh, there's also um, CFACT, C-F-A-C-T, I think, Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And they have great people. They have uh, great scientists. They, they have a climate historian, uh, Anthony uh, Tony Hellman, whom I interviewed before on, on, the, on the show. And he just goes into the history of weather. And you think, gee, you think you had a heat wave. Now you should see in the 30s when people were dying, and hundreds of thousands of people were dying around the world. Or then you talk about the medieval ice age and people skating on the Thames River in London. And the amount of snowfall we had uh, several years ago was more snowfall than the history of uh, New England, history of Boston, et cetera, et cetera. And it just um, it just confounds because they just don't hear this. And there'll be others, a number of others are resources. Um, uh, Willie Soon and his organization, uh, his group that um, CERES, and of course they're much more scientifically, you know, they're 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 writing their things to other scientists more so than they are the uh, layman. 
but you're still going to get a lot of great facts and stats and figures and in other words, the world's not coming to an end. But just my own experiences. I remember back in the early 70s when I was a young student in junior high that uh, we were going to have uh, climate change resulting in cold weather that'd be an ice age, that things would freeze over, you wouldn't be able to grow food, and millions of people would die unless we stopped burning CO2, stopped burning coal and using. And that didn't happen. That didn't pan out. Then I remember the, um, let's see, what was it? The uh, acid rain. Now, acid rain, uh, because of the uh, the stuff that we put in the environment, uh, when it rains, it comes down to the earth, and it's killing trees. Now, you would think it would also kill grass, so grass would be all dead. But no, it was just trees, not even shrubs, but trees. And I never forget, John Kerry uh, was took a trip to Vermont, and looked at, pointed at some trees that were dead and see, see, look what acid rain's done. It's killed these trees. And I remember, and I, I was concerned about that. You know, even though I knew John Kerry was a rascal, I thought, oh, gee, you know, dead tree, that must be, it's terrible. You know, we got to do something about that. And then uh, also it was going to, their acid rain was going to kill all the fish in lakes and ponds around the country, around the world. And there was a uh, former governor, Michael Dukakis, gets in front of a pond in Milton, Massachusetts, Turner's Pond, has a press conference that said climate change, oh, and I'm sorry, acid rain has killed all the fish in this pond. And I was familiar with the pond. I would take my oldest daughter when she was little, and we would take walks around there, and there was a little playground there, and occasionally drop a, a, a hook, and do a little fishing. So I thought that was pretty a bad thing, but I, I took a walk there a few weeks after Dukakis's press conference, and what did I notice? People fishing, people catching fish. I said, wait a minute, someone's lying to us. And that's when I realized something wasn't quite right. I said, we're being lied to. Uh, and that was back in the early 80s when I realized that the we were being lied to about the environment. And that was the other one. It was the, it was the um, oh, the... Um, it was uh, the acid rain, and it was the ozone, the ozone layer. You remember that one? That, gee, uh, we're all going to get skin cancer because we use um, aerosol cans. You know, the, the aerosol can in my, you know, for the hairspray. I don't use hairspray, but some people do, women, women especially. So stop using hairspray. You're going to put a big hole in the ozone. But then I realized... Uh, in order to have ozone, you need to have sunlight. And over the Arctic, in certain times of year, there was absolutely no sun. So there's going to be a big hole, of course, because there's no sun to make to make ozone. And so that was another scare. And then it was global warming. Instead of global cooling, we now had global warming. And uh, and that, was, that scare has been going on since the 80s. And even when you have a, a cold snap, you have some severe cold weather. That's when the global warming people, you know, get really busy because they wanted to deflect from what you're experiencing, your own experience. Uh, you don't have to be a scientist to know certain things happen. You know, a certain time in spring, ice will melt, tree the trees come back on the, um, the leaves come back on the trees, and the weather warms up. You know, that's something that we observe. Uh, this time of year, the leaves start turning colors and fall off the tree. That's because we know that seasons are changing. The nights get cooler, the days get shorter. One doesn't need to be a geologist or a forest ranger to know all this stuff because we observe it. So those are my, you know, our own personal personal observations. Sometimes are um, enough to say, okay, we uh, 
we know that what you're saying is not true because we've observed it. Uh, I think it was Al Gore. Well, Al Gore wasn't the first extremist alarmist. Uh, uh, what's his name? B back in 1968, the population bomb, Paul Ehrlich. And he said by the mid-70s, the seas would be devoid of fish. Uh, he making all kinds of predictions that uh, there would be ominous predictions. And of course, the solution is always total government control, control of the economy, control over uh, population. Although the left is really big on population control. But what's interesting, um, way back in the early 18, uh, 1820s, there was a, um, he was actually a clergyman. His name will come to me. Um, and he said, uh, he said, I think he wrote an essay, Should the Poor Be Hanged? And he said that, you know, they're eat, we're eating too much food. Uh, I mean, there's too many people in the world. And uh, we, um, uh, Thomas Malthus, yeah, Neil Malthusian is the term for people who are you know, claiming the world, there are too many people in the world. Really, the problem is too much government in the world because there's plenty of land. Uh, it's plenty of uh, ways to grow food and have fresh water. It's not the people, it's the governments that make the, are the problems. And they were actually yapping about uh, population, too much, too many people during the Roman Empire, you know. Uh, so it's really not a question and, uh, of how many people there are, it's just how much, uh, the, the, how much government interference there is. And uh, you look at Ch Japan, it's one of the most densely populated countries in the world, and they've got plenty of food. And they don't even have to import much food. They grow most of their food, even when they had the terrible earthquake. And the tsunami, you know, they would say, oh, do you need any help? No, you know, we got under control. You know, <laughs> we can we can take care of ourselves. And I heard uh, I heard this. And maybe some of you might be familiar with it. You could take the whole population of the world, put them in Texas, and there'll be still enough just in Texas to grow food and so forth. So whether or not that stat is totally accurate, I don't know. I just know that um, because of technology, because of, uh, you know, uh, the, the various uh, th things, we don't need as much land to grow food uh, as we did 200 years ago and access to markets and transportations and infrastructure that you can get food to the big cities. You just think about a city like New York, there's what, eight, eight or nine million people and there's food everywhere because they have the, we have the infrastructure to grow the food and bring it into the city <clears throat> and, uh, and so forth, whether it be fish or meat or po poultry or produce or what have you and uh, you don't need the government doing that but when government interferes that's when you have shortages and you have um, and, and the government is uh, fda and all these other agri u.s department of agriculture they do nothing but make it worse for people to grow food they pay farmers not to grow food they pay uh, they have these ridiculous standards where certain produce it's not doesn't meet this usda standard so it's destroyed when it's perfectly good and as states enact laws that make it difficult to give food away and yet, yet they're always yapping about americans going hungry every night meanwhile they make it difficult for free people private sector to actually provide and help with the food so i'm going to have that article and uh, i uh, i'm going to be able to uh I don't expect to change this guy's mind, but I expect some people to say, oh, I didn't know about this group called C-Factor of the Heartland Institute. I didn't know anything about Willie Soon and the fact that he exposed the hockey stick. I thought the hockey stick graph was was an accurate depiction of uh, the way the weather, the, the temperatures are changing or getting getting warmer every year. I um, also want to make a plug for a book. 
I mean, really, it's more like a booklet. It's not a full-fledged book. It was called uh, this, uh, The Supposed Change of Temperature in Winter, written by Noah Webster. Now, Noah Webster was a great lexographer who gave us his dictionary, and he sort of Americanized our English. He got rid of a lot of the U's, like color, C-O-L-O-U-R. <clears throat> and uh, he got rid of the U's to Americanize, uh, Americanize the English language. And he did uh, he and he was considered a know-it-all. Some people said, "Oh, gee, he's got a, he said he has something to say about every topic," but he was still a brilliant man in spite of that. Maybe he was, some people are know-it-alls, whether we love whether they annoy us or not. And he did a number of he wrote articles and essays, and he even debated Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson was one that believed the weather in winter, or the temperature in winter, was getting warmer. Now they weren't worried about the world coming to an end. They thought it was a good thing. And their major reason for that is species uh, of animals and, and birds going further north and doing well and surviving. And so some, some animals cannot adapt to certain weather. Some can, and some survive and thrive. It was interesting. Uh, I remember going to an event in West Hartford, Connecticut. I'm sorry, West Haven, Connecticut. And I heard this these horrible sounds coming from a telephone pole. The, the tele the, and they were parrots. They said, "What happened here?" I said, "Somebody a pet parrot escaped." He said, yeah, he said they're breeding here in West Hart West uh, Haven. They're doing well. He said they're a nuisance. They're noisy, and horrible animals to deal with. So you could say that. Well, is West Haven becoming a tropical paradise? No, it's just that these birds can adapt. They have these little shelters that that are on these telephone poles and then go inside there and uh, they be able to get, get food to survive and, and they breed. And so uh, that's not nothing to do with climate change it has something to do with just a species may been able to adapt because of certain conditions in that environment. Uh, there was a species of striped bass that, are, that is uh, hopefully still is. I haven't looked into this in a while in Boston, where there is a um, a power station, and the water around the power station is warmer than it is in the rest of the harbor uh, in the wintertime, so the striped bass don't have to go migrate down to um, Virginia and and further south, where the, where, the, where the water is much warmer. They're able to thrive here in uh, the Boston, in the Bo in Boston Harbor. Again, it's nothing to do with sea levels rising or climate change, just animals adapting and the power plant, it was just, it isn't that though, because land usage or water usage difference. And that's a lot to, a lot to do with the temperature. Um, Anthony Watts is a weatherman, and uh, I met him back in 2009. I interviewed him, but I don't have the access to, I don't know what happened to, I turn it over to uh, my colleague and it was never used. But Anthony Watts and his team, and he's got several teams, they visit all of these uh, weather stations where they do uh, temperature readings like they do every three hours or four, six hours, 24, 24 hours a day. And the first thing he said is that when the Soviet Union imploded, all of the Siberian weather stations went offline. So Siberia is usually pretty cold. So that was no longer put in the mix. And then he went to all these different weather stations. And many of these little units, they're outside of police stations. They usually put them in places where there are folks there 24 hours a day. So they put them on airports, runways. They put them in um, by police stations, in parking lots with this, with this <clears throat> pavement. 
and they don't want to put them right right in the front lawn, so they put them in the back. So some of the buildings they have, or they they have access to these air conditioners, and so they're right there where an air conditioner or the heat from the air conditioner, you know, the, the coming the other way. Uh, and so the temperature readings have been corrupted, and they use a different term. They don't use the word corrupt; they use a different term. Uh, and I asked him what's the percentage. He said something like eighty percent of the readings are inaccurate. They should be lower, but because of where they're taking temperature, there was even a place on the roof of downtown Baltimore. Now I can imagine in the summertime when you have tar on the roof or asphalt, that that would really raise the temperature quite a lot. And he said, uh, as bad as ours are, he said the ones in other parts of the country are even worse. And other parts, I'm, I'm sorry, other parts of the world are even worse. So again, uh, the world isn't coming to an end. Enjoy the warm weather. And uh, I'm going to uh, make all of these uh, resources known to some of these people who aren't aware of them. So they don't have to believe people like uh, this this man who uh, called me a blankety blank what do you say, fool because I don't I contend that climate change is a hoax. And what I did was uh, I posted a, the weather the weather, the man of the founder of the Weather Channel said that when I asked him who's behind the hoax, and he meant, you know, politicians and uh, people are making a lot of money off this, uh, pay to players and uh, uh, the United Nations, of course, anything that will be used consolidate power. So you, scaring people is a great way to get power, whether it's scaring them about a military threat. And sometimes these threats may be real. And, uh, you know, I can say that there, our nation is being overwhelmed by illegal aliens. That's not a that's not a scare. That's true. And the consequences are and we've already seen the cons. We've seen these for years. Crime, um, schools being overrun by people, uh, hospitals and cases, hospitals can't keep up and they end up closing uh, and all kinds of other uh, negative things. And now you see homeless, you see these illegals uh, in hotels and motels around the country. And uh, and they're going to these cities that are supposed to be um, in uh, welcoming cities to uh, for illegal aliens uh, and, uh, you know, these amnesty areas. And they're feeling the full brunt of it, you know, with these uh, these these folks. Um, in some cases, I'm hearing that patient veterans in certain hospitals have to leave because they have to fill them with illegal aliens. The illegal aliens seems to be a protected class of, even though they're non-citizens, they seem to have more rights than, than uh, U S citizens. Uh, so that's a true thing. But if I was to tell you, Hey, look, if you don't uh, give us control over uh, carbon over, over the carbon issue, then um, the world's coming to an end. And uh, so people get scared they say, well, yeah, what do we have to do to end this? You know, we'll, we'll be happy to live in little, little, little 50, 500 square foot homes in cubicles in big cities uh, with very little, with, with ration our gas, ration our food, give up our meat, give up our dairy. We can eat bugs or oh, whatever we do. We'll, we'll do whatever we have to do to survive and, uh, and give you folks unlimited power. And that's really what it is. It's a big power grab. And some people are in on it because they're making tons of money. Oh, if I was to sell solar panels, I can go in there and tell people, oh, you got to get, you got to buy my solar panels subsidized by the government made in communist China. But you don't have to tell people that because my goodness, we're going to have all kinds of grid problems. So, you know, you need 
And the bottom line is that these most of these folks that buy solar panels, they're on the grid. They're not off the grid. And when your lights go out, those solar panels aren't going to produce anything that's going to come into your house. It goes right to the grid. You want to buy your own solar panels and put them in your backyard or on top of your roof, using your money and not subsidized by the taxpayer, then I'm okay with that. And I've had some people uh, rave about them. And some people, yeah, that we rave about them until they start breaking down. And by the time we pretty much uh, trying to break even on the investment, that's when we got to replace them, you know? So, yeah. Oh, I'm saving a lot of money off my, my electricity bill. You know, uh, it used to be 300. Now it's only a hundred. I actually get money back every, every month. Okay. But you paid 40, 50,000 for those solar panels. So you got to add that into the mix. Right. And so, you know, so when they tell you they're getting money back, that sounds good, but you put a lot of money in and uh, by the time that starts uh, paying for itself, you have to replace those panels. And there's a lot of negative things with the panels as well. It looks like we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, so I'm going to switch topics just a little bit here. And uh, we have uh, some interesting issue. We had a senator that passed away in California. She was 90 years of age. She is the you know, Diane Feinstein. She was uh, once she had a communist spy as her driver for 20 years, but hey, nothing to worry about. She didn't tell anything, uh, anything bad. No, no question about it. She didn't. This guy didn't do anything. It's, but he was there for 20 years. But if he, if there was nothing important, uh, no important information, then why was he there for 20 years? The communist Chinese wouldn't uh, make that investment. So. Under the Constitution, Article 1, when there's a vacancy when it comes to the U.S. Senator, there's two things that can happen. Generally, the governor of that state can appoint someone to replace her until her term runs out, or the legislature, with the, with the approval of the governor, can pass a law where there would be a, a, a special election. And I think in California, I think the governor has the power to appoint uh, someone to fill her term until the next election. Uh, when it comes to members of the House, now they, uh, the, the neocon Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, wants to expel Matt Gates. You need two-thirds to expel him because they want to expel him, not because he's treasonous or you know, he raped somebody or robbed somebody or did some horrible crime, but because he's not going along with Kevin, uh, uh, who, who behind closed doors said he would, he would, not, uh, he, he would be act more like a Republican than more like a, a Democrat, and he's broken that pledge. So, uh, so two-thirds to expel a member of either house. And when it comes to replacing a Congress, a member of the house, the states have to hold special elections just for that particular, when that term is full. Though the members of the house only have two-year terms. So anyway, uh, I want to thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. And until next week, may God richly bless you.